Okay, we're going to be, I'm going to read, uh, Phil's going to teach from the ESV, so I'm going to read from the ESV, uh, Philippians 3, 7 through 16, and then we'll pray. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, if ever there were a worthy desire to attain, it is this salvation. Help us to press on toward this goal. Help Phil as he preaches today. Help the word go forth with power and with truth and zeal and fervor in our hearts, Lord, that we might be followers of you in truth. Bless our time together today, and we ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. It's a beautiful text. Can't really hide the point of the sermon today that knowing Jesus is the only goal worth having. Um, it's a beautiful book, the book of Philippians. Just a aside about the book. We're going through it in middle school, and I taught on it at the high school retreat, and I would recommend it to you at this time of year especially, nearing Easter Sunday. If, if you're looking for something in devotional time, the book of Philippians is a worthwhile goal, and it all centers around a poem in chapter two. Wonderful. It's unlike lots of Paul's other books, which it's a linear argument. Philippians actually centers around a poem, and every piece kind of fits into that poem, but getting ahead of myself a little bit here, a little too excited maybe to get into the text. I want to start with a question for you today and pause a little bit to let you think about that in your heart. Has the Christian life, has following Jesus ever felt like more of a burden to you than a, than a joy? Um. I really think the Holy Spirit was at work today, as he always is. What Reese said was very true of my life recently. I'll repeat that question and then proceed, but has the Christian life ever felt like a real burden to you? Just work. There's no joy in it. Um, it has been in my life at different periods, but recently, I confess it has been significantly with my youngest son, Moses. Love him to death. Um, but he is our worst sleeper. And one night, 
It, it must have been three weeks ago, four weeks ago, in the middle of Philippians, in the middle school, I was up teaching that there. In the middle of the night, I was up, and the Christian life was a burden to me at that moment. I, I confess I was angry at my son. I was like, why am I up at 3 a.m. in the bathroom feeling nauseous because I haven't had enough sleep? You know that feeling when you've just repeatedly gotten up and your body's just like had enough. And I was seeking the Lord in that moment, but I was pouring out my heart to him like the psalmist. I, I don't know. I wanted to give up. I wanted to curse. I just wanted to be done with fatherhood. And in that moment, the Lord spoke to me through the book of Philippians in this very passage. And what hit me then that was that my life was divided. In that moment, I was not following the Lord Jesus well. See, I propose to you today that this might be the most unimportant hour of your entire week if you live a divided life. If Jesus isn't the only pursuit of your life, then this hour is meaningless except that it brings you back to him in repentance so that he can be exalted in the throne of your heart for the rest of your life. That what we do here on Sunday morning, and I'm going to give you some interesting things that I gave the high school on the retreat, so some of them who are listening here, might, this might be a little bit of a rehash here. But just the time alone that we spend here is small compared to the rest of our lives. Let me give you some kind of funny stats here. There are about 8,760 hours in a year. A quarter of that, for those who don't sleep much, some it's much more. If you're like certain people, I know you need 10, and then it's significantly more. But I'm going with six, okay? So about a quarter of that, or 2,760, we sleep. 1,800 hours we're working, give or take. 730 hours a year we eat. Wow, we're at a table. Um, that's 5,290 for those who aren't mathematical geniuses. Then on average, we spend about 1,825 hours in leisure activities in America, like TV, socializing, sports, exercise. That's now at 7,115. Throw in 400 car hours in Dallas, it's much more. Um, well, I think you get the point here. We spend, in this teaching hour, one hour a week, give or take, so that's 56 hours a year. That's 0.5% of your whole life here. Now, I'm not saying it's unimportant overall, but 99.5% of your life is spent outside this teaching hour. 95% of it, this is what I told the youth group, is spent away from this community. Now, when we think about what Paul says to us, that ought to ring something in our hearts that's important. It should say that pursuing Christ is not just a Sunday morning thing. It's an all-life kind of thing. Okay, so what's the connection here? Why did I say I lived a divided life? Well, A.W. Tozer, and I commend his book, Pursuit of God to you, says that in America we have this habit of dividing our lives into two categories, sacred and secular. And I think this is exactly what Paul is talking about in the book of Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 16. In that book, he says that we are in danger of not knowing God well, or actually in danger of not knowing him at all, if the only time that he is exalted in our life is on Sundays, on Sunday mornings. He says that really life becomes a burden for the Christian when we live like our mundane, to use the word Reese used, 
lives are not important. That trap will leave you joyless. And that night, I was joyless. Christ was not at the center of my life. If you've been there, I think Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 16 will be very encouraging to you. And, and I want you to point your attention to verse 13 to start. The solution to this is to exalt Christ as your only pursuit. Put him as supreme over every area of your life. If you look at verse 13, he says, this one thing I do. What is that one thing? I think when you summarize this whole passage, it's knowing Jesus by faith. Knowing Jesus by faith is the most important thing any of us will ever do. And so, if you don't know him by faith, now is the time to exalt him in your life and trust in him as Savior. If you do know him, and you have known him in the past, maybe you're struggling now, like I was that night. Maybe you're struggling to see Jesus as the only worthy pursuit. Hear what God says through this chapter of the Scripture. Hear Paul say to you, Joy comes from exalting him in every area of your life. I pray that he'll do that in our lives because we need it. We need to see him as supremely valuable. We need to see him as he really is, which is the treasure, which is the pearl of great price, the only thing worth pursuing. If you look at verses 9 through 11 in your text, what Christ is, is our Savior. It says that, Faith in Christ brings us righteousness, not our own works. It says that when he is at the center, we trust in him. We look to him. We don't live a divided life. He reigns in us. We look to him by faith. For every area of our life, we depend on him. Look at what it says uh, when we get to verse uh, 13 here says, this one thing I do. Again, I'm connecting that to knowing God. It says, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward. Is that not faith? Is that not looking at God's promises in the future? See, there's great danger for us to rely on past spiritual experiences, whether good or bad. God's promises exist in the future. Faith that God can do what he says he will do tomorrow is what God asks of us today. And that is how Christ will reign supreme in our hearts. We know that he will keep his promises. This is a faith that Jesus is in control of your life no matter how much you mess it up. No matter how bad you sinned last night or last week, or you think you might tomorrow, Jesus is in control. And he offers forgiveness in Jesus Christ. This is a faith that looks at Jesus and says, yes, your grace will come to me tomorrow just as it has today, just as it has every day that I've walked with you. This is a faith that preaches to yourself instead of listens to yourself and says that there is no place on planet earth in which the risen Lord Jesus does not say, mine, mine. Whether it's in the White House or your house, Jesus says, mine, and I want your heart there. Whether it's alone in your bedroom at night or out with friends, Jesus says, mine. Whether it's in China's Muslim Uyghur camps or here at a restaurant, a Starbucks maybe, Jesus says of that place and of those people, mine. Whether it is in North Korea's prison camps or in Kim Jong-un's mansions, 
Jesus' arm is not too short to save, redeem, destroy, act in any way he pleases. Jesus says of that man and all of creation, mine. And while it might seem like a long while coming, it is but a short time before he will return and destroy sin and Satan and set things right. And the best part of that is he's going to set my heart right. I won't be angry at my one-and-a-half-year-old son. I won't live a divided life. I'll be able to rejoice without sin. And my own sin is the one that, as I grow older, I'm thankful that he will set that right. He will fix the sin in my own life. This is the God to whom we come. This is the God, Jesus, to whom Paul says he is worthy of everything we have. He is to be our one pursuit. So I'm claiming that the text then says, as its primary goal, that knowing Jesus, living a unified life under him, is the only worthy goal. I think he answers how we do that. In other words, okay, you say, okay, if that's the worthy goal here, what is Paul saying? How do we do that? I think there are three things, classical three, yes, cliche, but three here in our text that I've chosen that point us to the way in which we do this. And that is... Again, another cliche thing, but for our memories, the ABCs, okay? So, Christ must reign supreme over our affections, is the first one, or desires. So, in order to live this kind of lifestyle, this unified life, this pursuit of knowing Jesus as our only worthy goal, first, he must reign supreme over our affections or our desires. And this is verses 7 through 11. I think that whole section is very important to understand correctly. Three times in that section, it's like he wants us to understand what he's saying, right? He says, I count it as loss, verse 7. Verse 8, I count everything as loss. Following that, in verse 8, I have suffered the loss of all things. What loss is he talking about that he might gain Christ? Well, if you look up to verses 1 through 6 in Philippians 3, the context there is important. I'm going to summarize that you just for you for the sake of time. But basically, Paul is saying, I desired, I had set my affections on approval of men. I really think that's what he's saying. He said, I lived as a Pharisee. I tried to please God, but really, I, I was zealous for that. But really, my affections were a competitive spirit trying to exalt myself over everyone else so that I was the best. And I think you can see that in his life. Those of you who know Scripture well, but I want to point out a couple of things that I think Paul would identified with in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12, and Bob pointed this to me, we see that Judaism is basically a pyramid scheme. <laughs> the Pharisees, the ones on top, what are they selling? Circumcision for basically God's approval and other things. They make converts, and Jesus says, you go make a convert, you sell them this gospel. It's not a gospel at all. And they're twice a child of hell as you are. That is a pretty strong thing to say. I think that is what Paul is saying. Those things, those affections, to be on top, to get all the money, the fame, to be, if any of you have seen The Chosen, like the Pharisees in The Chosen. They walk down the street and everyone's like, oh, they're too holy for me. They wear the nice clothes. They look great in public. I think that's what Paul had set his affections on. That's what he's counting as loss. He said, God changed my desires. He changed what I wanted in life. And I think 
our brother testified to that this morning. He said he changed, Will's life has been changed by the gospel. By making Christ supreme, he now wants different things. His affections are different. If someone makes fun of him now, just speaking for you, brother, <laughs> I know you kind of, he's okay. Why? Because Christ reigns. You don't have to worry what that other person thinks. And actually, in the book of Philippians, it's the exact opposite. The kingdom of God works the exact opposite. When Christ reigns supreme in our lives, we want to serve other people. We don't want them under our feet. We want them lifted up on our shoulders. We don't, we don't want to trample over them. We want to encourage them. We want to see their gifts used for the glory of the body. We want to see them grow. We want to see them healthy, maturing in Christ Jesus. We're not comp- competing with each other in, when Christ is reigning supreme over our affections. We're encouraging one another. In Jesus' model, in Paul's model, in the book of Philippians, when Christ reigns supreme, we suffer and we serve. We're not at the top. We're at the bottom in this life. But it's great. And our affections will be set on Christ. So Paul says he counts all these things as loss. I believe because his affections were on the wrong thing. That was a desire for pleasing men or, or whatever you want to say it is. And see, this is a hard one because someone can do something on the outside, right? And I might do the same thing. And I might have bad motives and they'll have good motives. So it's really hard to tell in the short term. But our lives will bear it out. I love an illustration by John Piper. He says, if Christ is like the son of the universe, the son of God, the son of the universe, it's a good start, right? He is like the sun, which is gravity holds everything in place. And everything works well when the sun's gravity and its location is exactly where it is. But if it is one centimeter off, things start to look pretty bad, don't they? If our affections are set one centimeter off, if it's not Christ, something else, our lives are going to end in destruction. And I would say to you that actually, if Christ is not the center of our affections, if he's just one of them, our lives will also end in destruction. I love how Sarah Corrales said this to me. We talked about this in, when I was teaching Philippians on this passage, I believe. She said, it's not that Christ is just one of the many desires of our lives, and sometimes he's higher, and the other ones are higher, sometimes like work maybe today. No, he's the only desire. He's the only one who is worthy of our affections. And then we will be able to say, yes, I am pursuing you with my whole heart. Interestingly, a very worshipful moment happened to me. Last time I preached, I think I said something like this too, but I've read this book a lot of times. And when I got to the resurrections here, um, the resurrection, I'm saying there are two of them. uh, If you look at verse 10, the power of his resurrection that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Verse 11 that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection, I was like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. How, do, how is Paul saying that he can attain to the resurrection when he's not dead? I was like, that doesn't make very much sense to me. <laughs> Actually, I think there are two resurrections in view here. The physical one, for sure, but a resurrected lifestyle. Actually, we testified to that this morning, didn't we? We say, we're, we died with Christ and are raised with him. This is Romans. This is all over the scriptures. This resurrected kind of life where we set our affections on Christ 
instead of other things. Here is something really cool, that apart from Christ, we want wickedness. In fact, we don't, we don't just, you know, kind of go our way doing some good, some bad. We actually want wickedness. Our desire is nothing but wickedness apart from Christ. Romans 1 is very clear about that. It says, therefore, this is verse 24, therefore, God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity. And all kinds of other things is listed here. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation. It's not just that we're kind of half good, half bad. Apart from Jesus, we just want nothing but wickedness. But in Christ, God has made us alive. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 has the resurrection language. It says he seated us with him in the heavenly places. I'm saying to you that means we can actually desire things that Jesus wants us to desire. Ultimately, I'm proposing to you that the best gift of the gospel is not eternal life. It's not righteousness. It's not even peace. It's not a good conscience. The best gift of the gospel is being able to see Jesus and being able to want to fellowship with him, to know him, to use the language of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. How can I illustrate this to you? Well, one thing I thought of is this. Now, I love my kids, but they do bad things sometimes. <laughs> As do we all, right? Let's say for you it's a boss at work. Okay? Let's say you've made a mistake and they're angry at you. Okay, we've all done that. Some of us more than others, but hey, you know what? Fine. You are called into your boss's office. Are you going to start sharing personal things with your boss when he's angry at you for making a mistake? In fact, what's going to happen if he does that? If you do that, he's probably going to like, you, you need to go get your head examined, right? Like, I'm here to like discipline you, and you're in here trying to know me. See the connection? Someone who's angry at you, they don't want to know you. There's no possibility of a close relationship there. And that is what the beauty of the gospel is. That in the gospel, Jesus says to us, know me. Apart from Christ, actually, all that rests on us is the wrath of God. There is no possibility to know God. What we will know of him is his justice for our sins. But in the gospel, Jesus comes from the greatest throne room of the greatest kingdom and sits down in the jail with us. And let me tell you, it's not a jail that we're in there for bad reasons. We want that jail. We deserve that jail. And he says to us, know me. Those are the kind of affections that are possible with Jesus Christ. And I think this life will be one of humility, isn't it? I think that is a key in Philippians. This kind of resurrected lifestyle is one of humility that seeks the best of others. I think there's a good biblical example of that. And you can turn in your Bibles if you like or, or just write it down. But Luke 10, verses 38 through 42 is a great example of this kind of principle in action. This is, this is Mary and Martha. And this was pointed to me by a good brother, a friend here. And it illustrates exactly in action what I'm talking about with affections and desires. And, and it says this. This is Luke 10, 38 to 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came and asked him, Lord, 
Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. Catch this. But few things are needed, or indeed, only one. (laughs) Only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. See, I think there's a competitive spirit going on here. And I love that language. I don't know, maybe Paul was thinking of this story when he wrote Philippians. One thing is necessary. That's to desire, to be close, or to know, to use Paul's language here in Philippians 3, Christ. I love that story. And this brings me, I think, to kind of my practical application that hit me the hardest, maybe of all of it. Americans love prideful competition. And I am an American. (laughs) And I tell you, that is a real, it it hit me like a, it was really sad. I was almost in tears thinking about how my attitude in sports and other things, games, we all know what I'm talking about, would just run rampant. It would be, it's a disservice to Christ. A competitive spirit, just like we read in Luke 10, is not what Jesus is asking of us. Our affection should be the good of our brothers in humility and sisters, not competitive spirits. Um, there's a guy named Clifford Neininger, one of my great friends from college. I thought this guy, I was, I was fellow RAs with him, I thought this guy was like out to lunch because he was never like really trying his hardest in sports, and it really actually frustrated me. Ultimate Frisbee, I don't know if Eric's in here, he might be, but he knows Clifford well. Clifford is a really good athlete. But Clifford always went out of his way to make sure that everyone was enjoying themselves and that everyone was encouraged at the end. I was the exact opposite. In fact, I have to tell you that my brother was guarding me really well one time, Jason, my brother. He was like an inch away. I took the Frisbee, and he was about to attend count, and I threw it as hard as I could at his face. It left a dent there that looked like he'd been kissed for like a week. It was insane. I mean, seriously, you ask him today, and that is what happened. Man, I tell you, that was to my shame. That, that is not the kind of desires that Christ wants in us. And as Americans, I think we have to do a really introspective look here about where our affections lie in these things. Because if Christ is not our only desire in every area of our lives, sports, games, work, etc., church even, what's better, that another church thrives and the gospel preached or our church has a lot of people? Well, the gospel thrives. In fact, that's the way Paul was in, in chapter 1. He said, look, the gospel is preached and people are putting me down. But you know what? I'm happy for it. A competitive spirit, affections that lean that way are ungodly. The gospel is full of humility. See, a, lun- a unified life, a life that knows Christ is one that sets him as supreme over our affections so that he can reign there. We can encourage other people and quote-unquote, I don't know, set them free to use their gifts, encourage them, see the gospel spread. All right, secondly, I'm going to go to verses 12 through 14. So that was the A. Christ must reign supreme over our affections to have this unified life, to really know him. Secondly, he must reign supreme over our bodies. Our bodies. See, this language is very interesting here. In verse 12 it says, Jesus, I think it's verse 12, Uh, no, yes, the end of verse 12, Jesus has made me his own. I heard an amen when we were reading that earlier from the text, and that's right. This is a very important concept that our physical experience, 
all the things that we experience in our bodies, right, our flesh, can exalt God. In fact, they're designed that way. Every aspect of our physical experience, because God made us that way, is intended to help us to know Jesus Christ better. Every aspect. Else, how can Paul say everything? Right? How can he say that? Okay, so our bodies are in view here. So the first, the first kind of evidence from the text, this me, his own. I think he's talking about all of them. His body. And I think it's important to understand that when we look at how Paul is writing this letter and his experiences in Philippi, where is he? Prison. What's he doing? Suffering. What has Epaphroditus almost done? Died. Physically, he got so sick that the Philippians were worried about him. So he wrote, hey, he's well. But he almost died serving Paul. What was his experience in Philippi? Persecution. Jail. Physical suffering was in view for Paul here. I think he's talking about his body. If we do not submit our bodies to the lordship of Jesus, we cannot help but know him. We can't, we can't help know him. There's no way. God, through Jesus Christ, must reign supreme over our physical bodies so that we can actually know him, so that we can live a unified life. And this kind of this will hit very close to home, but it's the word of God, so we have to wrestle with it, right? Think about the way in which we use our bodies that can be running into sinful. How about the things we eat, consume? How much we consume? Our sexual habits. The way in which we interact with other people physically. Even our conversation. The tongue is a part of our body. See, Christ must reign supreme over all those things for us to really know him. I think this metaphor here actually also points to that. If you look at verse 14, this was another confusing part for me in the text. I, I thought I knew what it meant before I had to preach it and teach it. And I was like, oh, I don't really know what this means. It says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Wow. I was like, okay, so I need to do a little research here, and I need to think about this. And here's kind of the conclusion that I came to. So this is an Olympian runner games type metaphor here. So a sporting image using a physical body again. And at the end of those games, uh, respected officers, famous people, wealthy people, would preside over them. And at the end, they would call up the winner or winners. I don't know how many were there. I didn't look that up, but... And they would get to meet this person, and they would get a palm branch, or I believe it was a palm branch. So what Paul is saying here, I believe, is that my goal is to pursue the Lord Jesus, and at the end, my reward is to get to be with the Lord Jesus. Physically! That was cool to me when I saw that. We are going to be resurrected physically. We will meet him in person, and I will get to hug him. That is awesome. I mean, if that, if that doesn't bring joy to your life, we got to wake you up. That's okay. I get it. It's a long Sunday. I'm tired too sometimes. Think about that, though. It's not the palm branch. What is the palm branch going to do? It's going to rot in two days or whatever. It's the relationship with Jesus Christ that he's, that he's after there. He says, I run toward him, and you know what? At the end, I get to be with him. I get to sit at a table with him. I get to know him intimately with my physical body 
And the Bible and the Gospels are full of that kind of thing too. Just the bodily importance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he must reign supreme over our bodies in order for us to really know him. I want to hit it again briefly that every part of our experience as believers is designed in our physical bodies so we know him better. I want to touch on sexuality. Both singleness, whether you're going to get married later or God has called you to singleness, and marriage, both are designed so that you know Christ better. Think about it. If you're single and you're struggling with desires that are legitimate, but that God has said must be met in a certain way and you obey, how, how can you obey? You depend on Jesus every day for your purity. And you say, yes, Lord. And in that process, you get to know him better. And when you're married, the acts of sexual intercourse brings you closer to Jesus because that intimacy is a picture of his love for you. And if that height, that private thing can exalt Christ, can actually draw us to him, certainly eating can, certainly exercising can, done in the right ways. Our physical experience is important. And oftentimes, like Will said, suffering is important to draw us to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was for Paul. It seemed like it was for Timothy and Epaphroditus in chapter uh, 2. They're examples. When you say no to pornography, no to sex outside marriage, yes to doing life God's way, you will know him better. You, you will. It's God's promise. A unified life and a life that knows Jesus Christ means submitting our bodies to him, making him supreme over our physical bodies. And I think that is in view here in verses 13, 12 through 14. All right, finally, let's go to verses 15 and 16. So to know God, to know Jesus Christ, excuse me, Paul's one goal, we must A, submit our affections to him, B, submit our bodies to him, and C, contemplations. And I chose that very carefully, actually, because here was another part of Philippians 3, for whatever reason, that I really had to wrestle with. Um, and a couple of key phrases here are this, mature, think this way. Uh, let those of us who are mature think this way. Another one, if you think differently, God will change your mind. That's interesting. <laughs> Very passive-aggressive almost way, saying, hey, your mind is wrong. Uh, and then he says, hold true. I think that's talking about kind of what he's been taught, the way of life, but also the doctrine. So we have these three, almost threefold reminder in this letter to use the life of the mind to exalt God. And I want to use my son again, my older son this time, as an illustration. He loves superheroes, okay? And, you know, I'm probably a little more lenient than I should be, but he loves the Avengers, but he also loves kind of like Ninjago and all those ones. Man, he is just obsessed with them. He talks about them with his friends. Um, he particularly loves the books that go along with them, the Avenger books. He, he gets like five of them at the library every time he goes in Richardson, and he's reading them, which is really cool. And I, I ask myself, why? Why does he love that? And I tell you why. I think it fills his little imagination with a world full of power. And things get done that are miraculous. And to him, that's attractive. Now, we heard from Derek about the miraculous thing that happened to his neighbor. Actually, I think it was Joe who stood up and prayed for him. But 
the awesome thing that happened there, I'm not going to go into details, but when God does miraculous things, we, we love that. We want to get close to that. And I, don't, I wonder sometimes why my mind doesn't think on the supremacy of Christ more. Because that is another way in which we'll draw close to him. If we think on the amazing things he's done, raised the dead, saved us, protected us. I mean, the last time I preached, I gave you a billion examples. Not a billion, but a lot of examples. And I think that's why. I think that's why he's attracted to that. And I think that's why the thought life is super, super important for us. He says, think this way. Think about Christ, about his power, about his glory, about his miracles in your life and the life of believers for thousands of years. And as long as we remain here, he will continue to work that way. He says, think this way. Think on these things. Make Christ supreme in your thought life. You know, the Puritans are wonderful people. Greg has put me on them and the library guys have too. And I just love reading some of their different ways of talking about the Christian life. And one thing they said in regard to this is really cool. They said, the mind, our contemplations, are the watchtower of the soul. Isn't that interesting? The mind, the, what we think on, is the watchtower of our soul. It guards our soul. It's very similar to the affections in that way. And here is something that, application-wise, is very important for us. Large souls make little lusts die. This is kind of the same concept of affections, right, that push out other affections. When Christ reigns supreme in us, when he's our goal, when he's our pursuit, when our souls are enlarged by thinking about him, by serving him by being with his people by listening to music that is pleasing to god our souls grow large they feast on christ and his awesome power and you know what those little things in the world they start to like seem really small and stupid in fact oftentimes we're like how could i pursue that how could i do that or look at that or why did i ever treat that person this way even if they did me wrong See, large souls make little lusts, little sins, little grievances seem small. How do we enlarge our souls? Three points before I close. First, I think in view here, especially, is listening to people who exalt Christ in podcasts. I love that. There's two I would recommend to you that deal with cultural issues that help us to see the world rightly in view of the gospel. One is just thinking. It's three black guys who kind of deal with things that are important to them and relevant to our culture. It's called just thinking. The last one, I'll warn you, it's long form. By long, I mean three and a half hours. (laughs) But it is well worth your time. Listen to it driving to work. I know Philip Johnson has my brother and I have been listening to that. Another one is short form Cooper Talk. It's a the lead guy in a Christian rock band, but he has five, ten-minute kind of cultural interactions based on Christ. Good, Christ-centered podcast that will enlarge your soul. Secondly, whatever you listen to, listen to things that exalt Jesus. Not just listen to things that don't put him down. Listen to things that exalt Christ. Third, Read Christ-centered books. Our, our mind 
must be fed with the glory of Jesus Christ in order to pursue him. It will guard our souls. Two of them here, just given recommendations, throwing stuff out there that I've read recently that have been encouraging to me and kind of informative. One, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. Great book. Classic. Cool thing about that book, he felt the Lord was convicting him to write it about a unified life, really about the point of Philippians chapter 3, and he wrote it in one train ride overnight to Chicago. And it has stood the test of time for years. I think it was written in the early 50s. And here it is, 70 almost years later, it stood the test of time. That, great, that book is really great, and it talks about this kind of unified life. The second one is, if you are in a battle for your heart, um, to exalt him over your affections, over your bodies, over your thought life, the enemy within is a summary of a great Puritan work, uh, believed by John Owen, called The Mortification of the Flesh. I don't know if that's the exact name, but this book is called The Enemy Within by Chris Lungard. It exalts Christ as the only solution to our, our sin problem. And it helps us to see some of the things I've been talking about today. So, may God help us to exalt him in our lives. To know Christ, to make him our one pursuit, we have to make Jesus Christ supreme over our affections, over our bodies, and over our contemplations, or our thought life. That is in view in the book of Philippians. Check it out. Uh, he really talks about all of that. Uh, in the four chapters of Philippians. Let's ask God to uh, help us to do that this week, to pursue him alone. Lord Jesus, I confess my own heart has been pulled 80 different ways this week. And it is difficult at times to exalt you as supreme over my thoughts, over my body. But I'm thankful that it's not depending on me Lord, that it's you. And I thank you that the gospel is so powerful, that Jesus Christ, you are so powerful. You can change our hearts. You can change our lives, just like you have will in those who are baptized today. Lord, you are powerful to do that. pray that you'd help us to see you as supremely valuable. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.